This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. In 2008, a podcast was created with one goal. To bring Bat fans around the world news related to movies, comics, video games, television, merchandise, and so much more. And now, the Batman Universe Podcast has returned. Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of the TBU Podcast. I'm Dustin and today we have a very special uh, episode for you. Instead of a normal banter amongst the podcast hosts, uh, Scott has an awesome interview with uh, legendary producer, writer, and a number of other things, Michael Uslin, um, and he's going to be talking with him about uh, a, a bunch of different things. So I'm going to throw it over to Scott and let's take a listen. This is Scott with the Batman Universe Podcast and today we have a very special episode. Joining me is comic book fan and writer, university professor, movie producer, and Batman's Batman, Mr. Michael Usler. For those who have probably seen his name in the opening credits of every Batman film since 1989, he's the man who bought the film rights to Batman and worked tirelessly to elevate the Cape Crusader into an even larger pop culture icon around the globe. He has two memoirs on the subject, The Boy Who Loved Batman, and most recently, Batman's Batman, the first of which is currently being adapted into a Broadway play called Dark Nights and Daydreams. How are you today? I am jet lagged, (laughs) but great. (laughs) Uh, I just came from San Diego Comic-Con, and it really is the first big Comic-Con in three years. Um, It it was magical. It was wonderful, as always. Uh, Got to see a lot of old pals and um, meet a lot of new fans. And I love it the way that fandom literally invades downtown San Diego and takes over the entire place. It's incredible stuff. After, you know, some time away from it with it being shut down everything, how was Comic-Con coming back to it? Uh, It was great. It was a little bit different. Um, Just a little bit different. Um, There weren't quite as many people, I think, as usual. Uh, which can be a good thing as well as uh, a not so good thing. Um, but there was a lot more taking place outside the convention center in different venues and uh, a lot of parties, a lot of parties. Um, so it was, uh, it's still that fun social experience that it was for me when I went to the first Comic Con when I was 13 in uh, July 1965, where uh, uh, 200 fans. We were the first ones to get together and meet. And uh, and back then, it wasn't about dealers selling old comic books and things. There were only like four dealers back then. Um, they had their space in the ballroom. But for all the rest of us, we took a little blanket. We took a couple of gym bags filled with comic books. We'd sit down in a little spot. We'd spread out our comics. And we would swap. And that's what the early Comic-Cons were really all about. 
So uh, it's come a long way and it's been great. This was my 58th annual Comic-Con. And I think Maggie Thompson is the only other one who can say that. Um, but we're still standing and we're still loving it. And we are still imparting comic book history uh, to anyone who will listen. That's it's kind of funny. You you went into that backstory because one of my next questions was, you know, in reading, you know, The Boy Who Loved Batman, you know, referencing that, how you talked about it, you know, and before they were even called Comic-Cons. Um, but, you know, comparatively, you know, you started off like attending as a fan and now you're you're a producer, you're someone who nurtures this environment, you know, through your work, you know, how does that feel just coming from, you know, both those places as a 13 year old kid, you know, loving comics and now like kind of being a, a, a beacon of, you know, fostering this environment. Well, it's great because the boy who loved Batman still exists. I'm still that passionate fanboy. I'm still buying comic books and artwork and uh, going around to talk to artists and, and commissioning drawings and, um and going to panels um so it, it, it i'm still that fanboy and i think one of the reasons that um the fans have trusted me with uh batman and uh other comic book projects i've been involved with whether as a writer or as a producer uh, i think is that they know i'm one of them uh and i am i am not some hollywood suit that walks out on a stage with something that a publicist has written for me or a teleprompter that I'm reading off of. It's all from the heart and, uh, and, and nothing, nothing beats that. Nothing beats that. I'm so privileged at this age to be doing what I love in life. And uh, so it's not like work for me, but I feel a responsibility. I feel a responsibility not only to manage Batman's integrity, the darkness, the seriousness of Batman, um, but it's also about honoring the creators who were my mentors and friends um, who during their lifetimes were often denigrated uh, about being involved in comic books, you know, which back then were uh, accused of being the sole cause of the post-World War II rise of juvenile delinquency in America. Um, and for many of my mentors, it's too late to be able to, for, to have them see what has happened here. But certainly for their kids and grandkids and great grandkids, they're seeing the the work hanging in museums and galleries and universities and the respect that people have worldwide for comic books and the the superheroes who are absolutely our modern day mythology. So I feel really, really great about that. Awesome. Is there, you know, every year, is there something in particular that you always look forward to? Or do you have a favorite, you know, Comic-Con, you know, event or thing that, you know, it's always kind of stuck with you? Well, for me, number one is to find the panels and to find the booths that concentrate on comic books and on comic book history. Too often, Hollywood co-ops the spirit of Comic-Con and shifts the spotlight too much to stars as opposed to the creators, to the people who gave us these characters and stories. And nothing should ever take away from the impact of people like Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko and John Buscema and Roy Thomas. And I mean, I, I can make a list that goes on forever. Uh, on the DC side, you know, editors like Julie Schwartz, um, writers like Denny O'Neill, Archie Goodwin, Neil Adams, for God's sake, Steve Englehart, Marshall Rogers. 
uh, Bill Finger, Bob Haney, all these people that gave us so much. So having any opportunity to see their work either um, vibrant, being recounted with anecdotes or history in a way that spreads the word so that younger audiences don't forget these people and don't forget what got us here. That to me is the most important thing of all. I like when the spotlight is on comic books and comic book creators. That's great to hear. And I think, you know, as like all of us are, you know, fans of, you know, the medium, that's something, you know, we always gravitate towards too, because these are the people who, you know, created something and gifted it to the world that, you know, we, you know, celebrate and cherish and carry with us, you know, I think, you know, in a way, you know, it's, that's at least on my end too, it's always a motivating, you know, things are tough or down, you know, I do turn back to the page and, you know, it always lifts my spirits and helps push through. It's great. It's great when that happens. And that's, that's the way it's supposed to be. It really is. Jumping to um, your first memoir, The Boy Who Loved Batman, you know, one of the things I loved about it was, you know, it's the celebration of like the fantastical, anything is possible, you know, realm of comic books and this idea of finding, you know, a way to pursue one's dreams, you know, and you spent like the better part of a decade trying to get, you know, the first Michael Keaton led bat film made, you know, when you were going through the years between, you know, when you bought the film rights to Batman and it finally being put in production, you know, what kept you going? What motivated you? Number one, first and foremost is passion. Um, I've never been in this for the money and uh, I can hear my agent kicking me under the table right now as I speak. Um, but it's always been passion fueled for me. It's always been about protecting and defending Batman and protecting and defending the people who brought us Batman and the other, uh, characters. Um, I understood I had responsibilities. I had, uh, uh, a wife, uh, my first house, which meant my first mortgage. I then had my first child and I had obligations as a husband, as a parent, um, to take care of my family and the economic strains and stresses during those 10 years, as I was trying to hold on by my fingertips, uh, to get to Batman and that development hell just was incessant. It, 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 it was like living for 10 years with a carrot dangling one inch in front of your nose that you can't grasp. And every time you move forward to grab it, it just moves that one more inch away. That was what my life was like. It was always so close, but never grabbable, not for 10 years. And, uh, you know, when you go through that, as I said in my book, you know, it, it tests your metal as a human being. You got to look deep inside yourself and say, okay, is everybody right? And I'm just being stubborn or do I really truly believe in this? Do I really truly believe in myself? And I kept coming up with the second answer. So what my brother Paul and I learned from my mom is that when you make a commitment, um, you honor it. It's, It's a matter of honor and you persevere. And as my mom used to say, sometimes that'll mean you'll have to experience pain. But that's what goes along with it. It's not easy. It's not quick. And you have to be willing to bear it in order to honor your commitment. And that's what I was forced to do. That's what I had to do for so long. And uh, with everybody telling me, you know, your idea sucks. It's the worst idea we ever heard. A dark and serious comic book superhero movie. 
you know, get out of here, kid. Um, that's, that's every single studio, every single mini major turned me down. I heard that from everybody. I was crazy, period, end of story. But I knew I wasn't. And one of the questions I get asked most these days, did you ever anticipate, could you ever imagine how successful this would be? how it would pervade the world culture, how it would change Hollywood forever, change the comic book industry, change the world's perception of superheroes and supervillains and comic books. And I sit here and go, yeah, <laughs> I did. I never doubted for a second from the beginning. This is always what I envisioned. Um, but just the fact that as a kid in my 20s that I raised money and bought the rights to Batman is the most impossible, inconceivable story I could tell now, because unless you go back and set it in the context of the times, it just, it's like, oh, that couldn't happen. It just couldn't happen, but it did. And the unglamorous answer to it all as to how it happened is very simple. I was the only one on the planet earth who showed up. (laughs) That's how I got the rights to Batman. That's it. (laughs) It's a good way to put it. And yeah, you're right. I don't think that would ever happen again. You know, I feel like IP, you know, just watching as a viewer, it seems like, you know, a lot of, you know, studios sometimes try to like go through different IPs that aren't used and just test the waters and see if there's something there. And, you know, they're more, I guess, cognizant of it now. Oh, a little bit more. I would say right now, if you wanted to uh, get the rights to the green glob, that was a uh, tiny backup feature in Unexpected at DC Comics for for a few issues, you know, they'd probably want a million dollars up front. You know, it's this is this is the way things have changed. Huh. Um, something else, you know, I loved about uh, the boy who loved Batman is you know kind of serves as you know dual purpose of you know a bit of a, a history lesson in comics and how the medium has evolved and inspired you know so much since then and you know what you've just talked about. But um, one of the stories I wanted to touch on it was a it was a smaller story kind of you know buried in there. Um, but it was, you know, when you talked about meeting uh, director Sam Raimi, and the reason why I wanted to bring that up is, you know, what I loved about that story was, you know, him meeting you at a Comic-Con many years prior, you know, as just a fan of your work. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it was on The Shadow, I believe. Correct. Um, and I like, you know, that story because it kind of resonates with this idea of how, you know, our actions and accomplishments, you know, they, they can echo. And so have you had many experiences like that, either as a fan of something yourself or in having other creative people in Hollywood come up to you and tell you, you know, how you've inspired them? Oh, my God. The older I get, the more often it happens. It's like cosmic. It's absolutely cosmic. Um, I I was walking down Hollywood Boulevard one day. I had parked the car and was heading to meet my wife for lunch with some people. And I'm walking down Hollywood Boulevard and somebody walks by me and they go, Michael? And I turn around, I go, yes, and you don't remember me, but I was in the first class you taught and you, your class gave me the confidence I needed to move from a small town in Indiana to Hollywood and take my shot. And now I'm vice president of this big media company and blah, blah, blah. And it wouldn't have happened without you. I mean, and that's been happening more often. There was one night my wife and I went to a Broadway play and we got out. It was very late and we were parked at the Port Authority, which back then was like, you know, taking your life into your hands uh, to walk through the Port Authority, take the elevator up and walk to your car. 
the good old 70s and 80s of uh, New York Times Square area. And um, so we get on, it's like midnight, we get on this elevator and a guy gets on at the last second, there's three of us, and he's staring at me. So I'm thinking, oh God, we're in trouble. Something really, really bad is about to happen. And he goes, are you Michael Uslin? And my first response was, are you with the IRS? (laughs) (laughs) Who are you? You know? And he said, I'm just a fan. I go, well, how did you know who I am? I, I stay behind the camera. He goes, oh no, I have every DVD with, or it might even have been video cassettes back then. I have everyone with all the special features and I've seen you on the documentaries and, you know, can I have your autograph? And, you know, at, at midnight in an elevator in the Port Authority in New York City, it was just, just kind of strange. But, but this kind of stuff happens more and more, especially now with, first of all, everybody in the business is younger now, as far as I'm concerned. And with young people coming up um, who have either read my stuff, seen my films, um, in some cases uh, they've heard me lecture and I've, I, or they've read my book and it's inspired them to do something. And, you know, they say, boy, if it wasn't for you or if it wasn't for your words, I might not be doing this. And it, it, it's a wonderful thing. It's, it's what I call now, this is my legacy years. And hearing things like that literally validate for me the 10 year human endurance struggle that I had to get a dark and serious Batman on the movie screen. So it's very, very important to me. And I would say the last thing and the one that gets me the most right in the gut, right in the heart. I hear a lot these days from people, from fans who said, um, Batman 1989 changed my life. Uh, the dark night changed my life. Um, Back in 1989, my dad took me to see the Batman movie. I was seven. Or my grandpa took me to see the Batman movie. And they're gone now. But I have this great, great memory that I will never forget of those hours sitting with them and watching Batman for the first time. I mean, you know, it it makes everything all worthwhile. It's a beautiful thing. You know, that is, and I feel like, you know, a lot of people I talk to, we all have our own stories, you know, and it's, you know, that is, that is a beautiful thing. It's actually kind of funny too, because I went to pick up, um, uh, Loatian food, uh, not like the other week and I walked in and it's a family run business, but they're all sitting around at the table by the register watching Batman 1989 on TV. So <laughs> I walked in and I go, Hey, you know, and it was the scene where, um, <laughs> J- uh, Joker fries that guy with the hand buzzer, the joy buzzer. So <laughs> first thing I hear walking in to pick up our order, but it was, it was pretty funny, but yeah, no, I, you know, I have those, memories like that too and you know batman was my introduction to you know i I was born in 87 so it my introduction to the character to comics to everything it was kind of the launching you know piece of work that you know turned me towards you know comics it's great to hear and 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 the broadway play that we're doing with the niederlander organization which is incredibly exciting it's to reach out to you and to everybody like you and me, it's not that it's not that the play's about me, the boy who loved Batman. It's about every boy who loved Batman, every girl who loved Batman, every person who loved Batman. We can all relate to our own stories. You know, you know, there's such a there's such a commonality that we all share a, a warm and fuzzy bond over our love for comics 
and superheroes and animation and TV and movies. And, um, and that's an amazing thing. So hopefully when they come to see the play, it's going to be, wow, this could, this could have been my story. This is about my passions. This is about um, my alienation because of my choice of hobby that became my passion and finding community finally, whether it's through comic book conventions or social media or just going to a superhero movie that's filled with people who, who share the love. Um, it's an incredible thing. And it really is about finding your passion and finding your community. You know, on the topic of, you know, the play, you know, how is production coming along and is there, you know, a, a rough date on when, you know, we could see it? Well, we just announced it this past Saturday night at San Diego Comic-Con. And uh, we now have our director. We have the writer who is now writing the uh, final version of the play. Um, the Nederlanders are amazing. The Nieder- between the Nederlanders and the Schuberts, they are Broadway, period, end of story. So we're, we're with the top organization. Everybody gets it. Everybody understands what we're trying to do here. And a target, yeah, I would say, you know, maybe the target is for Christmas holidays of 2023. Um, it would open earlier in a regional theater in a pre-Broadway run. But uh, it remains to be seen. Everything's got to go right uh, when it comes to casting, which is surrealistic for me. Um, you know, it's going to be subject to the availability of particular stars. So, you know, our actors and, you know, we, we just have to go that way. But, uh, you know, the target is maybe around the end of 2023. Okay, cool. And then, you know, yeah, you just mentioned how casting would be kind of surreal for you. Are you, you know, paying closer attention to that or is that not only am i paying close attention my wife is paying close (laughs) attention to it because she's she also has to be cast and my parents have to be cast and my brother and um you know it's it's really something i I was sitting in a creative meeting a couple weeks ago with everybody and i'm sitting there and i go now wait a minute i don't think 10 year old michael would say that or would say it that way and then i go Holy moly, I'm I'm talking about myself in the third person. This is weird. This is really weird. But it it, it is incredible amount of fun. That's awesome. You know, I'm looking forward to it. Um, I wanted to jump to uh Batman 89 for a moment, just because yeah. you know it feels like you know we're kind of in a renaissance of that era right now. We just had a comic miniseries. Um, you know, and then Michael Keaton is suiting up for the Flash and Batgirl. You know, is there anything, you know, fans of that movie should brace themselves for, you know, coming out in the next year or so? And I imagine I know there's a an anniversary coming up, too. Yeah, they should brace themselves for seeing one of their oldest and best friends or family members that they haven't seen in a long, long, long time. And there will be a lot of um, metaphysical hugging and, um, and tears of joy. Uh, I I think it is, it is an incredible opportunity for all of us, all of us who were ever touched by the work of Michael Keaton and the breakthrough revolutionary nature of the Batman 1989 movie that changed everything for us fans and, and led to our superheroes and our comic books being treated seriously for the first time. 
So it, it is going to be warm and fuzzy. And uh, it, it's just going to be like, you know, slipping into a pair of old comfy slippers. You know, it's, it's just going to be, it's just going to be great. I'm going to ask you to put your producer hat on for a second. Uh -oh. um, and, you know, something that I was thinking about is, you know, for a while, we only really saw, you know, one on-screen depiction of Batman at a time, you know, but now, you know, the world's different. That doorway is open. You know, currently we have Ben Affleck, Michael Keaton and Robert Pattinson, you know, in live action movies. And Keanu Reeves is lending his voice in Batman D or to Batman and uh, DC League of Super Pets. So, you know, and I'm, and I'm looking forward to that and enjoying that. I know other members of our site are, but is there a reason why we're seeing so many different Batman at one time? Well, I think the world has changed and I think the nature of entertainment has changed. I remember taking 12 people to see Watchmen when it opened in theaters. And except for me and my wife, Nancy, we were the only two that were, that had read the graphic novel and they were into comics. And there were the two of us who were enthralled with what we were seeing and 10 other people who were completely lost in the opening few minutes because they could not even begin to grasp that in two different time periods, there were two, there were two different superhero groups representing different generations. They couldn't even get their hands wrapped around that or their heads. So they were lost for the rest of the three hours. Today it's different. I mean, I don't think you can watch a Marvel movie without a flowchart. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I don't know how you could possibly do it. And um, it, there's there's so much detail, so much backstory, so much continuity. Um, it's it's incredible to me that people can follow it, but they do. Uh, so I think with Flash opening up the DC multiverse and Doctor Strange opening up the Marvel multiverse. You now have an audience that's equipped to grasp it and process it. It's, it, it's a sea change. It really is a sea change. And um, it's doing nothing different than the comics have done over the last 80, 85 years. I mean, there have been different versions of Batman in the comic books themselves that range from one extreme to the other. So you could have the real dark, serious, menacing Batman of the late 1930s, early 40s. You can have the almost vampiric Batman of the 1990s. You can have the darkly romantic Batman of Marshall Rogers era. You could have the robot Batman, the zebra Batman, the genie Batman uh, of kind of the era I grew up with in the 50s and early 60s. Um, th there's so many different interpretations. Frank Miller's and now I think the world is diverse enough and the audiences are diverse enough that you can have many different interpretations of Batman out there. And each person can seek his or her own true Batman. Um, so you can watch Lego Batman, but unlike the 60s TV show, you're not laughing at Batman. You're laughing with Batman. You can have Batman meets Scooby-Doo, an animated feature. You can have the Batman as as dark uh, it, you know like coming right out of silence of the lambs or, or zodiac <laughs> you could have joker as a one-off that pulls audiences in because it is cinema at its best showing us like a mirror that we don't want to look into what has happened to us what has happened to us as, as individuals as a country 
as a civilization where we've lost our civility with each other. We don't talk to each other. We talk at each other. We ignore issues of mental health. And if you ignore mental health, um, that's tied to gun violence. And, and for a movie like Joker to put that right out there, I mean, this is incredible stuff that's taking place. Um, Chris Nolan, the, the Dark Knight trilogy elevated what everybody used to describe as a comic book movie, but today can describe as great films. So um, I, I embrace and welcome all of it. And now I embrace the Batman 1966 TV series because it is no longer the one and only sole image of Batman the world has. It's not Batman doing the Batusi and uh, looking for a place to put a bomb and bat shark repellent. It's um, what it is, is a mechanism to bring young kids into the world of Batman and Gotham City that they can grow up and mature and graduate into the, the animation, graduate into the movies and the video games. So I think it's all very, very important part of the whole thing as it, as it grows. There is, a, uh, there is a Gotham universe. There is a Bruce Wayne universe out there. And uh, these are all valid interpretations. That was a great answer. Um, I know we have a hard stop. So I have one more question and then I'll wrap things up. If you don't mind, um, what's on your poll list this day? I know you mentioned these days. I know you mentioned you still read comics. So I was just curious what, you know, what your poll list looks like. Uh, it is all over the map. Number one, being the guy I am, I spend more money buying masterworks, archives, omnibus, um, trades, um, I love collecting the old stuff and then collecting completed story arcs of new stuff that I want to follow. Um, there's a lot of great writers out there. This, maybe this is the biggest sea change. I tend now to follow writers more than artists. And I think when I was a kid, I followed artists primarily. So you know, if there was a book with, that Neil Adams drew or Jack Kirby drew, you know, I was there. Uh, but now I think I gravitate to, to, to writers whether it's Snyder, King, um, uh, Spencer, uh, Gail Simone. Uh, yeah, I, I, I hate to leave anybody out. So there's, there's just bunches of writers that I really enjoy their work in particular. So uh, I'd have to say I'm all over the map. I love the nostalgic stuff. I love the Batman 89 and Superman 78 uh, minis that, uh, that DC great. did. Um, what I don't like is when characters I grew up with and have stuck with for, for years, no longer look or sound or act the way they used to. If it's a violation of the integrity of a character, that's, I cash in my chips. I said, this is not my generational character. This is, this is for some other maybe younger person. Mine is dead. Mine's gone. And that's when I stopped reading or collecting a particular character. Okay. That's, that's total. That's fair. You know, and that's, you know, I love, you know, your focus on writers too, because that's, you know, something, you know, I follow a lot too. I'm a big fan of, you know, King, you know, especially, you know, Tom King too lately, you know, I've been reading a lot of his work, you know, and obviously Scott Snyder had a big imprint on Batman, you know, and that's, <clears throat> but um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, you could see how, you know, working in tandem, how they really can elevate the playing field when you have a great artist and you have a writer who wants to, you know, 
get a little literary with it or, you know, throw people through a loop. Um, it, it's it's really true. I even stopped. Do you remember Richie Rich? I I mean, I've never read Richie Rich, but <laughs> I know of him. And there actually is a, a someone created an indie comic. I can't remember what it's called, but it, they replaced Richie Rich with Donald Trump. It's uh, a Ronald yeah, Rump, I, mean, I believe, actually, is the name of the comic. Yeah, I stopped. I stopped re- reading and collecting Richie Rich when I realized he was Donald Trump in short pants. You know, that was that was an eye opener. That was not the character I knew when I was five and six. Um, um, my Archie is different than Riverdale's Archie. It's a generational shift. I don't say that's wrong or that's bad. I say that's great for younger people today to be able to gravitate and make Archie relevant to them. But my Archie is still, you know, hanging out at Pop Tate's Malt Shop uh, after school. So, again, it's a generational thing. Hey, he's a little more Twin Peaks now. <laughs> yes, definitely. And, and great. Let, let the younger audiences have that. And as long as the comic book company still gives me classic Archie, we're cool. Um, and I'm jumping off, um, I want to wrap up this ep- episode by, you know, thanking you for your time and answering my questions. You know, it was an absolute pleasure to get to chat with you, you know, your personal hero of mine, you know, as I mentioned earlier. Um, and it was, you know, your dedication to bringing Batman to the screen that, you know, like I also mentioned, turned me on to the character and sparked my interest in comics. And, you know, I know I'm not alone in that, you know, as we talked about. Um, for our listeners, you can purchase, you know, Michael Houston's memoirs, The Boy Who Loved Batman and Batman's Batman at the links below. Um, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Well, I have loved it. I've loved spending time with you and uh, working with somebody who is so knowledgeable and so passionate about what I am passionate about. Um, I don't always get that uh, in every interview. So I thank you for that. Uh, I'll also plug because Stanley always told me, Michael, make sure you get in the plugs. Uh, I now have audiobook versions of both of my memoirs, which I, uh, I don't even know what the right word is narrated. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I think yeah. there's, there's um, an art to it now. It's, you know, <laughs> I would say so. I would say so. So um, I could now literally read you to sleep at night, everybody. Um, so so that, that's been fun as well. What I would like to do is come back and do a part two with you. Um, there's going to be some real interesting announcements coming up over the next few months. And at the right moment, when you think we've got some really good stuff to talk about, let's get together again and we'll do this one more time. Absolutely. I would, I would love that. All right, and with that, that concludes the interview that Scott did with Michael Uslin. Uh Thanks to Michael Uslin for taking the time to, to uh, talk with us and share a little bit of information that uh, us Bat fans may have not known. Um, hopefully, as uh, Michael uh, hinted at, we will be having him on for a part two in the future. But in addition to that, we're also planning on doing a lot of other interviews unique things to kind of fill in some of the time um, when we don't have a lot of news interviews and uh, huge topics to discuss. So with that, expect uh, a lot more interviews in the near future um, from this podcast, and we'll be producing those on a pretty semi-regular basis. And uh, with that, that's going to wrap up this episode of the TBU podcast. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. If you are interested in finding out news related to movies, television, video games, merchandise, 
comics or anything else related to the Bat fandom, be sure to check out our website, thebatmanuniverse.net, which has all kinds of news, original content, and other podcasts related to the Bat family. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, we are on Discord. You can find all of our social links over on the website at the top of the page. In addition to that, you can send us an email at tbu at thebatmanuniverse.net with any questions, comments, concerns, or suggestions of things you'd like to see or hear us discuss on future episodes. Outside of that, uh, again, thank you so much to Michael Uslin. Thank you to Scott for taking care of the interview. And uh, for everybody at the TBU podcast, we will see you guys next time. 